Hey, it's Shane. I'm an independent A&R and manager in the music industry. Over the past few years, I decided that I wanted to launch a podcast about the journeys of musical artists and other industry folks from a mental health perspective. Many of the inspiring, uplifting, and sometimes heartbreaking stories you hear about the music industry are true. Everyone in this industry has a story to tell. I hope through these vulnerable conversations that we're able to inspire creatives in music and also shift the music industry towards one that is more welcoming and encouraging to all. Welcome to Intentcast. St. Clair went from living on an orchard in Washington to performing on a stage with Macklemore in just a few years. He is a self-written, recorded, and produced artist and a friend of mine who really believes in humility, hard work, and treating people with respect. St. Clair is in the middle of recording his next project called World's First Cinema with collaborator Phil Thorpe Evans, who goes by the producer named Problem Child. We chatted about his move to Seattle and then Los Angeles, the power of resilience, the ups and downs of the artist journey, and sticking to your gut. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Hello. Hey. hey. How's it going? It's going. Um, it's great. This <laughs> <laughs> um, sort of like makeshift studio that my uh, partner and I went out to to set up and get some work done during the pandemic. Um, so thanks so much for um, volunteering yourself to be a guest on my podcast. Always. Um, it's called Intentcast because it's a podcast about the artist's journey within the music industry from a mental health perspective. And I know that's an important topic to you. It's a really important topic to me. I'm trying to shed light on, you know, the good times and the bad times and everything in between in hopes of kind of changing the industry and making it a safer place for artists, producers, writers, and other creatives. I would love to chat with you, like starting all the way back from the beginning, um, from your humble origins in Washington on an orchard to literally learning violin and being a boss at classical music to being on Jimmy Fallon with Macklemore and touring um, up to your solo project and a new project that's coming up that we can talk about later. Yeah, no, we're excited. My, my first kind of thought is, would you, could you talk a little bit about the community that you're from and how you were first introduced into music? Um, the community that I'm from is extremely unique. I came, I grew, I grew up in a place called the Matau Valley, which is a town of about 2,000 people. My home class, when I graduated, was like 46 kids, I think, and the whole high school was about 200. <laughs> so, just like incredibly, I'm a super a small town kid, and I, I think I, I think I've carried that forward with me, and I'm eternally thankful for that. Uh, I'm also eternally thankful that I, you know, kind of got out of the small town. <laughs> um, but no, it's it's beautiful. I mean, I wouldn't even looking back now. I don't I don't think I would have traded that for anything. I think it shaped how I view myself and how I view the world. And you know, like my girlfriend always makes fun of me because I like wave at everyone 
on the street and I'm super nice to people I've never met because I just, yeah, it's, I'd like to take that small town attitude with me, like forwards, you know, for the rest of my life. Um, and I think it kind of shapes the way I view music too. I started with violin there, had some incredible teachers, despite the size of the town, we had just world-class musicians there. Uh, so I was really, really lucky at Tara Weaver and Pam Hunt um, and Terry Hunt were my teachers in music growing up. And they, you know, they gave me the classical basis that I uh, get to ruin with my bop music. <laughs> I relate to that so deeply as a fellow <laughs> classical musician working in pop. <laughs> it's such a thing. Actually, uh, that's yeah. like, you bring up a good point. Um, so you were studying classically in school. And I don't know if you relate to this, but pretty much every classical teacher I ever had for clarinet when I was really into that um, kind of warned against pop music as a medium or against the validity of, uh, you know, Katy Perry on the radio or um, Mm -hmm. Bruno Mars. And I think what's interesting um, for you as a fellow classical musician is you kind of don't stick to any genre at all. Um, and kind of started with that, those classical roots, but went, um, as far as you possibly could from them. (laughs) Um, can you tell me a little bit about the mental state you are in to go on that journey when you're surrounded by folks in classical music and not in a big city? Like, where did that impulse come from? I was always, um, deeply influenced by Celtic, I think. Um, Mm -hmm. Celtic music, my dad and I listened to a lot of Celtic music and just folk music, and uh and cinematic music too i mean my first real like real influences are um like hans zimmer and john williams i mean hearing those scores and like howard shore and lord of the rings like hearing those scores really shaped me um on an emotional level and then i like to think that my training with classical music served as a lens through which to view music and less so as a, um, you know, I didn't go to a conservatory, so I was never surrounded or influenced as directly by classical music as I think I was by like my Celtic fiddle heroes and my um, my cinematic score composer heroes that made these just like lush. I mean, they made films come to life that wouldn't be the same without them. And I think that was my biggest um, my biggest influence. Totally. And I think I think you can definitely hear that in your music. I mean, you've dubbed it as Cinepop yourself. The blueprint for the music you you started creating with one instrument was huge cinematic worlds. You know, Hans Zimmer, John Williams, these guys are creating some of the biggest scores of modern time. It's almost like the, the orchestral Beethoven or Bach. And to go from, you know, kind of the classical orchestra music to inventing your own sound from the radio and from uh, orchestras is definitely very unique. I, I read that you also conducted as well. Is that accurate? Um, yeah. I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I, I unsurfaced that. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, when I was a kid, um, I mean, it was a really beautiful thing to be able to be a part of. When I was a kid, I wrote with sort of the guidance of Terry Hunt, one of my teachers, one of my projects coming out of high school and sort of like my last Town was writing a couple of symphonies for our orchestra, and then I also got to conduct them um, live, which was really cool. I mean, I, I don't think I don't think a kid would have gotten that chance in, say, Seattle or LA. It just doesn't. It wouldn't have cropped up. But I got to do that, you know. 
again, like another reason I'm eternally grateful to come from where I come from. Totally. And then you kind of underwent a shift where you started releasing solo music um, around what, yeah. 2014? Yeah, that same show actually where I conducted, I also sang live for the first time, conducted two pieces, and then I went and I changed my shirt or something, and then I came back on and I sang with like a little, it was like 12 or 12 or 13 piece quartet and like a little band and keys and like guitar and all that stuff. Um, that was That's such a small town thing. <laughs> like the, the star, the star player switches from like conducting an orchestral piece to doing an artist project with like the remaining string orchestra. <laughs> Just like takes a few people. Yeah, for real. Um, that's awesome. And how did you, how did you end up moving to Seattle and kind of as your music career kind of elevating itself or at least in, in terms of how well your music was known and how many people it was reaching? Um, how did you handle that transition? Uh, it was, Seattle's a really interesting scene. I think um, it's, I wasn't, a Seattle kid. I was very much from a small town in Eastern Washington. So it took me a really, really long time to kind of break in. And I think I was doing a lot of self-discovery, uh, like you asked, um, at the same time, just in terms of my music. You know, I, when I came to Seattle, I was looking for stuff that I, I was really, really intent on only playing it live. And if the record had to accurately reflect the live show and I was really, you know, I was looking for live musicians. So, I didn't go to college there, but I moved near the college area. I was like that weird kid that hung out with all the college kids, but didn't go to college because they were the only people my age. And I met a bunch of guys from the jazz department and I tricked them into joining my band and we played some shows together. (laughs) And then, uh, yeah, I mean, that was right about the time I started working on my first kind of like little EP collection. I think I was like 17 and I, kind of just figured out how to do everything myself and taught myself a little engineering and keys and like put everything together. Um, but yeah, Seattle was interesting. Those like grew a lot in the four or five years that I was in Seattle and, uh, yeah. Kind of your boot camp or like the college equivalent. It sounds like you just went there and threw yourself in. A hundred percent. I mean, I did that instead of college. So it really was kind of my college. And I, again, it's another thing that I, I don't, I don't think I would have done it any other way. Um, yeah. I just threw myself at the wall and just like saw what stuck because it was really important to starve for a little bit and to kind of figure things out without any outside help. And just, I still think that being inside a recording studio and working with real people on real projects is potentially like, you know, I, I may get in some trouble for this, but potentially more valuable than like a college music experience. Um, that's my two cents on it because i feel like the real world and real work experience just teaches you loads loads that you can't get from inside a classroom yeah i feel like especially in this industry like putting in your ten thousand hours is definitely a real thing and you know we're also dependent on each other in a, in a healthy way i think like it's such a community um that we've found ourselves in that it kind of lends itself to only in-person practicing, you know, if you want to call it a practice. Yeah, or, it's a collaborative industry and it's changing month to month, you know. And I think most of that collaboration and that change just happens 
out in the city in random studios with random new up and coming musicians. Yeah. How was, how was it when you moved to Seattle and you were 17? What was your living situation like? Um, I lived in my friend at the time called it like Harry Potter closet. It was literally <laughs> under the staircase of this like kind of like repurposed frat house. Um, and it was meant to be a bike storage closet. And I th- I measured it once and I think it was maybe 10 feet by eight feet, but I'm not actually convinced it was that big. I think it was more like six by 10 almost. And so I squeezed a studio and a living space in there and I had a piano like shoved into the end and it fit just perfectly in one end of the room. It just touched either wall, either side of the piano, just this little electric piano just slid in there. And then I put my computer on top of that and like shoved a couple speakers in there. And that took up half the room, like a little hanging dresser thing. And then one of those Fred Meyer like foam pads, which I eventually upgraded and I bought another foam pad and I put it on top. So I had two foam pads and that was life for a few years. <laughs> okay. So you literally lived in like a music control center. Like that was kind of it. For your- oh yeah. I mean, I can play, I could like wake up in bed and sit up and play the piano. Like it was, everything was that close and tight. Um, but it was really like, it was fun. I mean, it was a really good group of guys that were living in the house um doing like studying all kinds of cool different stuff no one was really a musician which was also equally cool we all kind of had our own things going on um yeah it was really cool it was great Uh, again another thing i wouldn't i wouldn't change even though no could have (laughs) totally and i think um i relate to that moving around for on the business side and living in really unideal situations uh technically but like things that kind of changed my life because you're so close yeah it's crazy how your perspective changes too i mean i was just i didn't think anything was wrong with that i was having a blast i was so happy just to have my own space and my own keyboard and you know now it's like the pool doesn't work for a day and you're like upset. <laughs> you just yeah. have to check yourself like, whoa. <laughs> you know? It's so real. And did you, um, you said you were having a great time. Were there any, especially in the beginning when, I mean, you're kind of just doing this for your own love of music, right? And I think yeah. there's a time when you're releasing music and I don't know if if you can pinpoint like one of your singles or one of the two EP projects um, when you start getting outside feedback and maybe either ha- you have this option to kind of assimilate with the industry or like kind of choose the path to keep paving your own. Can you pinpoint kind of a time when um, maybe that was difficult? Yeah, it was always difficult. Yeah. <laughs> it's still, yeah. I mean, it's, that's like, I think to even see someone with um, what you perceive as relative to you as successful, like they're still, they're still going through it every single day is sort of like a mental challenge and there's like breakthroughs and there's slumps and like sometimes those breakthroughs and slumps can happen all within four or five hours. And I think that's pretty normal and it's okay because I was always really, really intent on building my own, 
um, lane and my own path. Uh, that's just what was important to me. And I started out doing music because I loved it. And I always told myself that, you know, if you, if you never become a rock star and you're never famous and you never make a penny off this, you have to be just as happy with the music you've made. And you have to be just as happy being a musician. And as long as that's important to you, everything else just takes time and effort. And it's extremely important that you just stay like true to that and your own music. Cause you will always be happier for that. I think. Yeah. I, I feel that perspective from you all the time, even in our previous chats and hangs. And I think I kind of want to know, do you feel like that perspective is coming in retrospect or did you feel it when you were 17 under a staircase where do you think that came from? I felt it when I was 17. And I don't know, like, it may be different for everyone. I'm sure it is. But I definitely felt that when I was 17. I was consciously trying to be aware of the fact that this is, you know, and part of this comes from probably conversations with my dad. He's a super realist and it was a huge, always is a huge supporter of my career. Um also is it like not an idealist <laughs> and you know to quote him like parents worst nightmares that their kid wants to be a musician and if they do like you just hope they're at least good at it and so <laughs> i always came from this perspective like you know making money is a really important facet of life if you want to be comfortable and you want to be healthy and happy it's just a factor um so i had to find a way to mesh that with choosing a career path that is super not lucrative and really difficult to make money in and I just had to be okay with it, you know? And I think ironically, the mindset of make music for the love of it, make music because you're incredibly passionate about the music itself, ironically is more lucrative in the long run. I think you end up making better music and people like better music. Totally. I think, especially with you, um, you know, sticking true to your path has created music that sounds different than everybody else's. And I don't think it came from you listening to everyone else and you know saying oh how can i one up i think it's more like you stuck to that yeah. i find I've, yeah, I've had a lot of um people like in my studio and people whose who's, like, projects i've produced or you know writers i've worked with and you can just tell from the outset that they write a song and their first thought is will other people like it and their first concern is sort of like writing a song by crowd approval you know, like what's popular, like what are people going to appreciate? So, well, people aren't writing this song, you are. And if it is successful, people don't have to sing it for the rest of their lives. You do. And so, right. you like, I mean, one of my favorite quotes is from Stephen King and he was in an interview and, um, you know, they, they were talking about his books and like the next thing he wanted to write and they said something along the lines of, you know, what's the next book you're going to write for your fans? And he said, oh, he just stopped dead cold. And he was like, I don't write for anyone. I write for me. Why, why do you think I write? Like to him, it was a stupid question. It's like, I write for me. I thought that was really cool. Um, music's so communal, but like, I think sharing a part of yourself is what's so beautiful about music. Yeah. And no one wants to hear a song that like you didn't write and put a piece of yourself in it. That's so important. Totally. And I think with you, you're also, you know, every song you're, you're starting yourself, you're starting the production yourself, the lyrics, the concept, the melodies, and pretty much have worked with like a small group of collaborators on your solo stuff. But 
have kind of kept, yeah. kept it true to you. I'm wondering um, if you could chat a little bit about how your feature on Macklemore's 2017 album came about and what that felt like as kind of this person who had just been doing music with your soul intent mind and then seeing it, you know, receive this huge audience um, going on Jimmy Fallon. What was that experience like? And did it, did it change your perspective at all? Was there any sort of time where you had to come down from that kind of high or did you feel very kind of centered and driven the whole time? Yeah. I mean, definitely like there was a come down. I think the funniest <laughs> part about the whole story is I wasn't even like financially independent on for in terms of the music yeah since like i wasn't like completely dependent on my music i was still working in a restaurant which is like in a super roundabout way how that whole thing came out which is like well other funny thing when people ask you like how did that happen it's like well i bust this guy's table razzed who's a rapper who i just knew and i asked if i could send him my music and he thought i was a rapper like <laughs> a rapper and like those are the kids who listen to his stuff. <laughs> and uh, I sent him like Smoke Out of Heaven, which was like a soul folk song. And he was like definitely surprised and intrigued. Ended up working with him. He got offered a tour slot. Macklemore saw me play violin on Raz's tour slot. I collaborated with him. That led to me singing with him, um, doing some string quartet composition and like uh, playing on Fallon with him. And so it's like this super roundabout thing. And then at the end of our first tour together, I went back to bus tables at that restaurant. So yep. like that whole concept to me is so funny. Like people probably saw me doing that. And we're like, Oh, like yo, John's like, yeah, he's like playing in front of 8,000 people. And like, he must have money now. Or like, he must be like totally like cruising. Like every day is crazy. And it's like, no dude, like I was, I was like picking up dirty sushi plates a week after that tour ended. Like, it's just, yeah. that's just the reality. It's a slog. And I think a lot of people come to LA, especially, you know, and they, they want things to just pop off in a year or two. And it's like, again, it goes back to that thing. You've got to be happy with your music, whether or not it's full on going hundred percent right off the bat. You have to be happy with you and your music first. I, I so agree. Like, I don't think anyone talks enough about how, you know, the music industry is a, is a passion project, like from start to finish. And you go through jobs, you go through opportunities, you go back yeah. to jobs, you, you know, for you, um, working at a sushi restaurant after you went on tour with Malcolm Moore, I've been back and forth with like part-time jobs and in other industries. But the thing is, I know it's, it's worth it in the long run. I wonder yeah. how you handle the noise around that, what you hinted at kind of going back to a gig that isn't music related and you've had some success in music and you're still working to build this thing. Um, how do you kind of block out the noise or do you accept the noise of people, um, you know, who don't necessarily understand how the industry works? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think if you just like stay humble and don't ever get too big for your bridges, because even when you do have a success, success is, it comes in waves, you know, yeah. even massive success, like, you can peak and then there's like a slowdown at the end of that peak. Every peak has another side. Right. So I think just staying humble is super, super important. Keep in touch with people who really care about you and couldn't really care what your job is. 
yeah. that's also really important, you know, like you're a reflection of who you hang out with and that's going to help your mental state when you go through those peaks and valleys. Uh, the weird thing about coming off of tour with Macklemore and playing in front of like, you know, anywhere from five to 10,000 people doing like arena shows and then going back to busting that restaurant was crazy. I mean, that was definitely like a super high, high and then not a low. Cause I felt lucky to have a job in the first place. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think just keep perspective and just knowing that like there's going to be up and downs, you know, it's tough. It's tough. There's like a, like you said, there's a lot of noise and I think staying humble and just really, really working to appreciate what you have is one of the best ways you can combat that noise. Because to be honest, I have now that I have some success and before when I didn't have as much, my ups and downs and the intensity of them really hasn't changed. Gotcha. If that makes sense. Like I move forward and being in LA, I'm in a better place than I ever have been mentally, but the ups and downs, you know, and the distance between them is like pretty much the same. Even when I wasn't doing anything of a successful nature and I was just like making tracks in my shoe closet, I was, I had the same like happy moments and the same sad moments for pretty much the same reasons. So like, I think success doesn't change that a whole lot. Keeping that perspective can help. Yeah, we're still human. <laughs> totally. Yeah. <laughs> like absolutely. no matter how successful you get. Um and also I think the journey is long like you've been doing this your whole life. Yeah. Um and uh even mentioning the opportunity of serving your friend at a sushi restaurant leading in in a kind of long about way to touring with Macklemore. I think um I think maybe we sometimes value this like random luck or opportunity when I would, I would venture that you were making those opportunities for yourself all the time. And some definitely. Yeah. I I feel like you have, there's no substitute for the hours you spend yourself working on stuff because little opportunities are kind of being presented to you all day, every day. But if you are not at a place where you can take advantage of them, then they might as well not be presented to you. Like if the head of Interscope record, if you just started a new project and you're still getting it going and you're not really sure what the direction is and, and you have lunch with the head of Interscope records, like what's that going to do for you? Right. If not- anything, it'll probably ruin your connection with Interscope records because you're not ready yet. Like, so do the work behind the scenes so that when those opportunities come, you don't know when they're going to come. And when they do be ready because you've already done the work, you know, like totally. Um, over the past two years, especially moving from Seattle to LA um, and starting to release more of your own singles that have been really taking off on Spotify. Um, you're moving towards another project. Um, do you want to yeah. talk about that project? Singular? Yeah. Uh, my buddy Phil's in the next room uh, working on it right now. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah. I'm really excited. It's the, it's the first time I've ever collaborated with someone on this scale and like on this level um i was in kind of like again like a rut emotionally with my project and uh yeah i've been working on it for like it depends on how you look at it but easily five or six years like plugging away at saint Clair and just trying to make that world work and putting out new material and it was like it's very solo project too i was really doing everything myself um besides mixing mastering by the end of it um, which can be a little lonely. 
And uh, my buddy Phil, who I had known for only really a few months, he came through and he was in kind of a funny place with his own project, Problem Child, which is an EDM project, which is totally incredible and you should check it out. Totally. Um, and he said, you know, like you play piano and violin and like you do all this crazy cinematic scape stuff. Like, do you want to just make some sync music? Like, do you want to just make some like stuff for sync? Like just some tracks that we can like try and get in some movie trailers or like do some cool stuff with. And like, honestly, the number one goal was just to have fun. That was like the whole golden rule of our project was as long as we're having fun and we think what we're doing is really cool for us. Nothing else really matters. Like, cause we have our own solo projects, right? So it doesn't matter. Like the worst yeah. thing what ended up being some of the best music I've ever written in my entire life. And Phil felt the same way. And so we're just, uh, we made an entire, it grew a lot from just a sync project. And now it's an entire band called world's first cinema with Phil and I as a duo. And, uh, we have 12 songs written already. We haven't even released them. And we're looking at a record deal and we just signed with a sync company. So excited. Congratulations. You know how hard it is to make that happen. It's so <laughs> crazy. I mean, that happened in six months for us. Yeah. Whereas with my project and that's just like the power of teamwork when it works right, which is something that like, I'm just a slow learner. You know? um, well, you work so hard. <laughs> I don't know if you're slow. <laughs> I think you put in all the effort. <laughs> oh, well, that's, that's sweet. Yeah. I hope that's true. Um, but yeah, it's, I think with Phil, it just felt right. And we're, we're moving like really, really fast. And I still feel that it's all happening because of what I said earlier. Like we're making the music because we like it and yeah. everything else like has to follow. You can't please everyone. I don't think we're ever going to be like a top, top pop act. Like we're going to have like a really incredible fan base and we're going to play shows that we want to play playing music that we want to play. And like, that's the way forward. I think in my eyes. Right. But also like you're creating cinematic music with your voice and violin, like that you would have liked as a kid, you know, like Hans and John Williams, bluegrass, folk music. Like that's pretty much everything talked about <laughs> Absolutely. it uh, feels like this crazy full circle moment like i started there and then i went off and i did all this other stuff and now like i've come back with all this experience and like connections and stuff to this starting place of like how can we make like let's get inspired by this movie scene and make, like a western cinematic whatever we want and then let's move over and do like this like these huge medieval strings and like just put like a crazy drum pattern under there like it's just it's fun it's just really fun yeah and i think i think that's kind of your own little hero's journey right there you know it's like all the ups and downs were worth it because now you're kind of leveling up and becoming even more of yourself and i think that's really admirable and um sometimes i think we forget during the moments that are particularly difficult, and I do this too, that every every failure is going to lead to a, a circle back moment like that, you know, a reset um, where you realize what's next for you. Definitely. Yeah, I think it's really important that you don't get too stuck with like people put their ego into their music. You can't not put it in there. It's just a part of you. And when you're writing a song, if it's personal at all, or if it's a reflection of you at all, which it is because it's your song, 
you're going to enter your ego in there. And like working with a partner has let me pull almost all my ego out of the song. And the song's only been better for it. Like it's just, the songs get to have this uh, really cool, creative, fun life of their own because we're just writing, you know, stuff that we think is fun. And I think it comes through in the music as sort of like a little more of a selfless like track. Totally. I'm, I'm really excited for that project. I've heard a bit of it and it's, it's just, you can tell that it's a bigger world when you two come together. Um, and I'm, I'm so, so happy for you that you've gotten some deals lined up to support it because it, it should be supported. Appreciate that. We're super excited. I want to ask about um, sort of the intention. And I, I think it's funny because I think knowing you, um, even in person, you're such a, a warm centered person. It doesn't really get offset by anyone. It almost feels like you do have this intention behind your music, but also just yourself. Um, it, it seems that you, there is something that you're, abiding by um especially in la when things can get a little crazy do you want to talk a little bit about your guiding principles as an artist and as a as a person kind of navigating this world yeah um i think <laughs> uh, that's a big question i know it's huge <laughs> like well, can you tell me everything <laughs> important one i think uh yeah i mean i think staying humble is super important because no matter how much you think you've done, you really haven't done that much in the big scheme of things. And it's more important to be happy with the work you're doing than it is for other people to think you're cool because of the work you're doing. Um, that became really apparent in LA too. Cause that's just, I mean, that's just LA as a city. And I love this place, especially for music, but that, you know, I think taking your time is important. I think a lot of people don't realize how much time and energy it takes to get somewhere. And how much people say they do, but I don't think they really see the effort that, you know, for every like hours worth of perceived work, you see an artist pushing it, putting in who's successful. There's 24, 48 hours of like weeks of studio time behind that one hour that you see. So putting in your time and at the same time, taking your time is so important. Like, if I had moved to LA when I was 17, I think I just would have been completely bulldozed. I don't think, you know, maybe I'm wrong. I mean, who knows? Maybe it would have been fine, but I got to hang out in Seattle and make some mistakes and have some success and have some failure and, you know, play in like weird bars for totally on a Sunday night. Like I got to do that. So I get to be here now and taking your time. I think those concepts work together. If you can kind of stay humble and have perspective of where you are, you know, appreciate the really cool stuff you have done and appreciate what other people have done. That's like way cooler than you may ever do. <laughs> you can have that perspective. Like it's going to help center your head a little bit more so you can actually be happier with yourself. I love that. Um, I have two more questions. My next question is if you're comfortable, could you talk about, a time that was particularly rough for you and how you got through it. One of those lows we discussed, I guess. Interesting. Um, there were probably two moments that I can think of. Like 
it's not a particular dramatic moment, but in Seattle, just kind of starting out and again, like losing perspective of just, it's that kind of just classic, like petty stuff, but you know, checking your email and nothing's come in. Like no one's, you know, putting a new song and it's like not really streaming at all. You know, like all those moments just suck. And like, you know, on top of living in a cardboard box. And at that time I was a bike delivery boy for Jimmy John's. Like, it's just right. You know, it's a little, it's a little rough. And like, I think even in that time, I didn't think it was that rough. Looking back on it now, I'm like, Oh, that was, you know, kind of difficult. <laughs> but, yeah. Those, those lows. I mean, like, you just gotta like put more elbow grease into your work. I mean, it's like cheesy, but I always felt best when I was working on stuff, you know? And like, if I really didn't feel like working on anything, um, that was like the most important time for me to just like sit at a piano and like, indulge in a music you know a little bit of music i used to hang this whiteboard on the wall and i would mark down how many hours a week i would play and i would try to hit benchmark like 30 hours like of writing and recording 40 hours of writing and recording you know and i think that helped me kind of keep perspective and keep on track and then recently uh really switching over to phil and i's project world's first cinema um making that switch was really terrifying like i had yeah i feel better now than i ever have i think uh mentally and emotionally and a lot of it's due to our project and just like that collaboration and what that's afforded me and sort of musical happiness um but making that switch and sort of like the ego death of putting saint Clair off to the side what you perceive is your project and like the rightness in you and like sort of like the you know the it's what your ego wants like something you've worked so long on you get stuck on it and you need it to work otherwise it means you have to accept a certain level of failure and i think working through that in my head i mean i had like panic attacks it was you know that was rough making that transition even though it was a transition to something that i knew was great it comes back to your ego and like you you've got to learn how to remove that a little bit I mean, it almost sounds like, you know, with the panic attacks and just having to deal with um, that, it sounds like almost like a a bit of grieving or loss of some of a concept or do you feel? Yeah, yeah I, I think so. I mean, yeah, yeah, I think it, I think it's sort of it's probably some of that wrapped up in there, but just having it coming to terms with the fact that what you've worked on for years is now kind of no longer a thing and it's shifting away that you become very, very attached to on, on like an identity level. Cause it's not just a project right. on, it's a project that has literally my name on it. Everything I presented myself as has been that project in a way. And so yeah. having that go away is like, it's strange. It's super strange. And there's definitely, absolutely. I would imagine there's grieving and loss. Like it's hard to self-analyze, but you know, those are the, the stages that I went through transitioning to this new project. I mean, that's that's a really brave move, you know, to because you don't I mean, your your project isn't nothing. You know what I mean? Like it's you've had quite a bit of success with it and the music's still out there. And, you know, there's a lot of like clout or kind of other ego metric yeah. associated with that project to launch something totally new. Can yeah, be don't even get me started on clout. Like, Oh no, I would love to. <laughs> I swear, like especially there's people who just 
they're literally more concerned about cloud than they are about any of the music they actually write. And that was like an immediate know it. turn off for me. Yeah. Um, I get it. I mean, that's like instant gratification, you know, the sort of clout or social status or whatever, but um, man, like, I mean, keep the right thing in your crosshair. Some people I feel like chase that high way more than they do the high of writing like a piece of music they really fall in love with. Um, but yeah, I, I think uh, it's again, like St. Clair was never nothing and it did like quite well and it's put me where I am. It's that weird thing of like, do the work you have to do so you're ready when the opportunity comes. Well, when like Phil and I worked together for the first time, we were both ready you know, have opportunity to work together because of all the work I'd done with St. Clair. Yeah. And then the streams later and like working with some of my favorite artists, like I don't feel at all. Like it was a bad thing, but it's just this transitional period, like being able to recognize something that's immediately moving really fast and immediately picking up steam and being like sort of taking yourself, looking at it from an objective viewpoint and switching lanes it's really important to switch lanes in anything you do like music business or whatever like don't be afraid to switch things up and like take a stab at something new it's easy to get stuck on a project solely for the reason that it's your project and you want it to work and you've already put time into it right right and i think i think none of that energy and passion towards towards the saint Clair project goes wasted because you've done that work and i have um one more question and it's actually about the industry. How could someone, um, either a new artist or a collaborator, writer, producer, business folk, how, how do you see our generation going forward and making a healthier environment for creative folks who go through these ups and downs? And for, for you, I mean, you've had quite a long career given your age, you know, several iterations of your career, several transformations. Um, how do you create a safe environment? What types of people would you like to see more of in this industry? Um, I'd like to see more women in the industry. I think that's incredibly important. I hate the fact that when, you know, I'm or someone else walks into a room and you see a woman in the room, like you tend to assume that they're the singer because women have been like pushed into these certain roles um, in the music industry and this really goes for almost every single industry but i i really like i want to see more women engineers and producers and like just like more female energy in general and like taking on these like leadership roles in the studios like a like a producer like leading up the se- session like heading the session running the session like i think i think it's so cool when i do see that and i want to see more of that i think more of that the better truly a more a better balance overall like i mean the world's sexist but like the music industry we don't have an excuse like we're all supposed to be these soft creative people like we should just knock that off i think i i so agree with you in all aspects of the industry just that you know personally the artists that i know and creatives like yourself are so forward thinking socially um and in a way that's so accepting and loving. And I think I, I personally make it my goal to reflect that in the future of the music industry in the best way I can. And I, I can agree more with what you're saying about a more equitable industry where there's people yeah. 
who look like all different types of folks um, who are just contributing their their life and knowledge and experience in a way that they want to. Yeah, I think truly, I think that and after the internet era is such a crazy, I didn't really live before the internet era, but the internet era is so crazy for music. I mean, it's it, people love to talk bad about it, but honestly, I think it's one of the best things that's ever happened to the independent artist. Yeah. The fact that you could write, finish, mix and master a song today and have it up on Spotify by tomorrow you know, I mean, within reason, it's got to upload and stuff. But other than that, the fact that you can do that, such a quick turnaround is, uh, I think it's so cool. It really puts the power in the artist's hands. And, you know, like it takes a little bit or balances the power between the artist and the labels. I think that's, that's super important. And I think it's like, it can only help lend towards, you know, like having more women in the industry, for instance, and like, sort of like supporting more of these types of people and like, getting them involved in the creative process because the power is really being put in their hands. Totally. I completely agree. And I'm so glad to hear that from an artist, um, to hear that from your perspective. Um, and hopefully, you know, we can continue to evolve this industry and make it a better place for everyone. The answer to how it's tough because I feel like it, that, I don't think a school is the best way to do that. Um, but then again, like I have my own opinions on like music as it comes to like a formal college education. Sure. Um, I think there's a conflict there and, uh, I think it almost has to come from the top down. I mean, I think like it could be as simple as saying like a really, really strong woman who's like very famous and successful what she does, but she's a producer. She's not like a singer, you know, like some of these figures, like, you know, like Nicki Minaj and like these really powerful women figures. It just like how many people and young women like that there and young musicians, I mean, young guys too, like everyone should be aware um, how many people that like their tweets can reach, I think is literally going to have an impact on shaping, you know, the way this industry like kind of fashions and like how all these new artists trickle into it. Cause like, that was my biggest influence was never anything I learned from a teacher, you know, that helped shape my skills. But in terms of where I wanted to head in an artistic direction, it was shaped by my peers and like people who I thought were super cool and whatever they were doing, like I wanted to do that too. I wanted to be like them. Totally. And I had the utmost respect for that. And for you, um, I completely agree. And thank you for taking the time um, to talk about, a topic that I think is really important um, in this industry, you know, and kind of going through from St. Clair to world's first cinema. Um, I'm super excited for your new projects and um, glad that you kind of hold on to these guiding principles. Cause we need more of them in this industry. We need more folks who can let go of their ego, myself included um, for the benefit of improving you know, improving perspective and making a healthier place to be. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much. You're having me, Jane. This is really cool.
Hey guys, it's Shane. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of IntentCast with St. Clair. Follow St. Clair on Instagram and listen to his music on all of the platforms ahead of the release of his new project, World's First Cinema. I'll include links in the podcast details. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and share it with a friend and give us a follow at IntentCast Official on Instagram. Special thanks to the IntentCast team, Julie Diaz, Eddie Ramos, and Roger Weeks. Our podcast features Fifth Dimension Prayer and Los Angeles, two original tunes by Danielle Landy, who also composed her jingle. Check out her music on all the places music is heard. Until next time, take care. <laughs>